Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey everybody, welcome to another new episode of Undying Light. I'm your host, Pastor Alex, and we are back once again with another fresh episode for you. This time, uh, we are entering a new chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. We're at the 14th chapter right now, and today we are going to look at the death of John the Baptist. So this will be just essentially a story inserted that uh, the apostles had decided was important for us to know John's uh, essential um, demise, if you would, uh, after his preaching. And so he gets imprisoned and now he's going to be put to death by being beheaded. And that is, uh, the result of his life. And unfortunately the results of a few other apostles who will go on to be beheaded as well. And sadly for many Christians throughout the church age have experienced such a tragic ending. So there's no words from Christ in this little caption here. We will see him uh, again here in verse 13 through 21 when he feeds the 5,000. And uh, so if we have enough time, we'll get to that. But I do definitely want to dedicate as much time to these passages as I feel are appropriate. Obviously, this is not an exhaustive study, and I would always encourage you to pick up commentaries, study Bibles, and uh, read through those if you are genuinely interested in deeper dive studying. Uh, pick up things that you don't agree with, too. Get different views. If you're know if you a Baptist and you are uh, looking for other views, uh, pick up a Lutheran perspective, pick up an Orthodox or a Catholic perspective even of these passages. Expand your horizon and don't just live in your confined presuppositional views. I always encourage you to look at other views. Me personally, um, you know, I come from a Calvinistic background, so I'm very familiar with those views. So I'm not necessarily going to go to those as a resource. I'm going to look at a Lutheran perspective first. Then I bridge out and I consider, okay, well, how do the Orthodox say this, the Greek and Eastern, how are they interpreting these passages? And then I look at 
perhaps a, a Catholic or a Roman Catholic perspective even, how are they interpreting? Not that I would agree with them, but I would utilize those resources to help me fully and better understand the passage if I struggle in trying to work through it. So that is kind of just a, you know, my my spiel, if you would, on making sure that you are constantly um, growing and challenging your faith. Don't just allow yourself to be told what to believe. Go out and and dig that up for yourself. And again, it's it's a great thing to have a good pastor who's going to be dedicated to preaching law gospel. It's good to have a preacher that can teach you an expository type message and explain the text to you and allow it to be relevant for you. Uh, those are all great and needed for the Christian walk, but we are also encouraged and challenged as Christians to continue our faith walk and read the scriptures for ourselves and dig into those with uh, you know the various views that are available for the, from the church for 2000 years there's there's plenty of resources that we would never be exhausting of so let's get into the text today we're going to look at the gospel of Matthew the 14th chapter as we've continued our journey through this together and uh, we are at the beginning of the halfway mark if you would chapter 14 is you know half of 28 so 28 chapters, we are beginning um, that halfway mark now, and as we do so, we are going to see the increasing uh, measure of the Pharisees against Christ, uh, especially here once we get into the time centered around his crucifixion. So we have uh, not a whole lot of text left before that period, so we are going to continue our journey, but we are you know, well on our way to the cross at this point. So here we go. Verse 14, uh, verse one, chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodes, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came and the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask, prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Then the king was sorry, because, but because of his oaths, and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. So, kind of a gruesome passage, really. Uh, this We don't know how young this daughter is. Uh, she could be, you know, 12, 14. <laughs> I mean, there's really... There's really no indication um, for this, but she would be most, mostly, as, as uh, Josephus identifies, probably in her teenage years. And the fact that she's prompted by her mother, but she she relays this 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 prompt of wanting a head on a platter. That's pretty grotesque and morbid. And and I, <laughs> I mean, 
you see enough horror movies and you've seen enough, you know, like war movies and other, you know, grotesque type things. And uh, you can only imagine what it would be like to uh, witness and carry a head uh, of somebody who was just alive a few minutes ago. It's kind of grotesque. And, uh, but here we are, this is the time period. And, and, and I really think they're a little bit more accustomed to death and, and the grotesque nature of life, uh, than what we are today, essentially sheltered and comforted by, uh, our ways of life here in the West. So Herod, uh, has arrested John. This goes all the way back to chapter four. So this is now, um, John's been in prison for a, a, a an exceptional amount of time here. He was imprisoned in chapter four and kept in prison as indicated in chapter 11. And uh, the speculations could probably point to the palace fortress at Macarius. This report of John's beheading is a flashback to what Herod had ordered earlier. So this is not a detailed time of what is happening, but it is just a flashback to what happened earlier and was ordered earlier. So we don't, again, know exactly how many days or how much time John had spent in jail. We just know he was arrested, and then after a period, his uh, execution is ordered. So Herod called Antipas, son of Herod the Great, uh, back in chapter 2, by his Samaritan wife, uh, Malthus, rules the region of Galilee and Perea from 4 BC to roughly 39 80. A tetriarch is a Roman title for the ruler of a secondary rank, though sometimes he would be called a king. So here in verse 2, we see that they make this kind of statement here. Uh, this has to be John the Baptist. This is what he said to his servants. This must be John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead, and he has miraculous power. So the fame of Jesus is causing this stirring of a guilty conscience. And so as the fame of Jesus grows, they are trying to equate, well, where did this come from? Why does he become so popular? And truth be told, John the Baptist was a fairly popular person until Jesus came on the scene. So crowds would follow John as he was baptizing them and calling for repentance. And so John had some influence in the communities. And now Jesus's fame has triumphant over that. He has exceeded that. And so this uh, has reached the ears of Herod, and he is fearful of what this may come. Essentially, the view was that Jesus would come in and overthrow Herod and overthrow the Roman Empire and set up his rule. That was the, the stirring of fear from these rulers at this time period, and you can see even how the Pharisees kind of play into that with the notion that they fear that Jesus is going to come and disrupt their comfortable and cushioned lives. So there's that fear uh, at play. And so he's trying to figure out how or where essentially he could place the blame for the fame of Jesus. And he says, well, this has to be John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. Here's the flashback to uh, the death ordering of John the Baptist that Herod makes. And he uses that, again, like I said, as a positioning to try and justify the fame of Jesus. And he goes on and he says uh, in verse 3 here, Herod had seized John, bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of his brother's wife, Herodias. So his 
so Philip was his brother, and more than likely he's uh, now deceased, dead at some some level, and his wife is a you know that him and his brother's wife have a thing. And John forbids that. He says it is not lawful for you to have her. John is condemning Herod's adultery with Herodias, the wife of his half-brother Philip. Uh, And it's contrary to divine law. So John makes that condemnation, and he is locked up essentially for that. So that's why John is put into prison, because he wouldn't you know, placate and play politics and tell that, Herod, that everything he does is does is just well and wonderful and perfect and great and awesome, and you should just you know live your life as you choose, right? That's kind of the main philosophy in today's world. You know, you're free flower, go and do as you please, type thing. Follow your heart, right? Except Jeremiah tells you that your heart is deceitful and wicked and evil. So be careful following your heart. So John says it's not lawful. He's condemned the adultery taking place. And he's put into prison for it. And though he wanted to be put, he wanted him to be put to death, he fears the people. So Herod wants John dead and out of the way, out of the picture, because then he can do as he pleases. He doesn't have that, you know, voice behind him telling him that he's wrong and he's going to go to hell for it. Um, And again, we can talk about hell in a literal interpretation of existing now or in the day of judgment. Uh, and funny enough, because you, you, I don't know, maybe here's a rabbit hole for you. The the construct of hell, in my opinion, is an interesting thing, especially in the Western church today, uh, because we, we fear that, you know, hell is this fire and brimstone place. And I would like to say, based upon what scripture tells us, that until the day of judgment, the fire and brimstone place isn't a place that we go to for the unbelievers. We don't as Christians, but the unbelievers are not going there. They're going to where Jesus describes as utter darkness and gnashing of teeth and weeping. And so I think that's kind of like the the in-between state, or if you would, the purgatory positioning for the unbelievers. While the believers, as Jesus promises, the thief on the cross, they will be in paradise. And so John condemns Herod, and Herod has this fear of John, and the fear is driven around what, you know, is this something that I should be doing or not doing? He wants to be with his brother's wife. We know probably more than likely his brother's dead or incapacitated to some extent and is, you know, essentially out of the picture. And so he wants his brother's wife and he's being told it's wrong, and he's being told that this will condemn him. And so John makes that very clear. This is why he's put in prison and why now he is going to be put to death ultimately. So he fears the the, the uprising of the people. Again, the Herod has a lot of fear, right? He fears Jesus. He fears the people. He's kind of uh, a scaredy cat, if you would, right? He's one that just uh, doesn't rule with divine authority. He's one that rules based out of his own fears. And those are very dangerous rulers because they are going to uh, take whatever precautions are necessary to eradicate those fears. And if it's the people, then they will take action against the people. If it's individuals, then they'll take action against individuals or companies or things like that. So 
rulers or leaders who rule out of fear uh, are very, very dangerous people. And we have the you know case in point right here with Herod ruling out of fear, and John the Baptist is ultimately going to be put to death for it. So when his uh, birthday comes, Herod's birthday, uh, the daughter of uh, Herodias, which was Philip's wife, uh, comes and dances, again, probably a, a, in that teenage years as Josephus identifies. Uh, and there's this public celebration, and so she's here dancing with all of these invited guests. And she's probably dancing seductively, which is a little weird from our perspective, but for the Roman, uh, Greco-Roman you know, cultural of influence, this was would have been a normal thing that, you know, essentially his niece is dancing in such a seductive manner. We don't know if it's towards Herod or if it's just to the crowds in general or just in general. And, but that's essentially what happens in these parties. And uh, the Romans, you know, I'm going to give you kind of a PG-13 comment here. The Romans were very much attracted to orgy type parties where it was essentially a, you know, a, a festival of sex for, you know, multiple amounts of days. The Romans were very interested in that just as much as they were interested in killing people. So it, you know, it's the whole adage, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? That's what the Romans lived for. So Herod would not have been exempt from that. And so these parties uh, would you know, especially with a birthday celebration, would fall into those categories with a seductive group of dancers. And here we have Herod's niece coming and dancing. So she is given an oath by Herod, and she prompts, based upon what her mother says, he, he she turns and says, uh, "Give me the head of John the Baptist." So Herod essentially is a reckless and foolish to swear that he would do whatever this girl desires. He's also sinning in fulfilling this evil oath. And so remember back in the Sermon of the Mount when Jesus says, don't make an oath by heaven or on earth, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Herod, again, is breaking that, um, those essential rules that Jesus is giving, and he's you know, again, furthering his sinful nature. So first of all, he's committed adultery. Second, he is providing this oath to his niece. Third, he's going to fulfill that oath by having a man killed. So Herod is chalking up his sinful nature and heaping it up into a big pile and essentially will have to answer for it on the day of judgment. So He's he he's very sorry, according to you know this text, which again probably is kind of one of those things that he the guilt is uh, reoccurring and stirring up in him. Uh, again, the fear driving that guilt, and he must fulfill his oath as a king, lest he be called a liar and a cheat and a fraud. So he is to fulfill his oath. He says, "I will do anything for you." probably, again, out of maybe even a lustful intent for this young girl. Um, It wouldn't be, again, far-fetched in the Greco-Roman Empire for this type of relationships to be happening. Um, In our views today, pretty gross and disgusting, but it was a very common, you know, group of lovers, if you would, back in this time period. 
And if you really read through a lot of those pagan nations, their histories, you'll find uh, a lot of this kind of thing happening. And it is, again, grotesque and disgusting in today's terms because we, we would know, you know, from our own perspective that this is just not, you know, lawful. It's not what we are called to do. So out of guilt, he has John uh, beheaded in prison. As verse 10 says, he sent and had John beheaded. And that head is brought on a platter. And his disciples came and took his body away. So the death uh, of John, the, the glory, the gory death of John is anticipation or a foreshadowing of the impending crucifixion of Jesus. So uh, shadows and types are a, a really interesting part of theology. And when we start to focus on those, we can really see how scripture is interconnected and so woven together like a really good piece of fabric that here we have the grotesque nature of John's death and his head is you know removed and is now paraded in this birthday celebration and displayed amongst all of these invited guests. This is very similar to how uh, Jesus is publicly mocked and ridiculed and whipped and then hung on a cross for all people to see. So a nice little foreshadowing to the death of Christ to come. And so uh, throughout history, wicked earthly rulers have attacked Christians and Christ and his kingdom, uh, but their rage really is in vain, as Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2 state. Believers might at times be concerned about the outcome of the warfare between God and Satan, but we have to have no fear. Christ has already won the victory, as Paul notes in Colossians, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 57. So this is the significant point of the scriptures. Christ has won. He has triumphed over evil. He has defeated sin, death, and the devil in his death and resurrection on the cross. And so when we examine the world today and we look at kind of the whole entire landscape of all of the crazy things coming. In fact, if you're uh, in the midst of all of the um, conspiracy theorists, uh, their biggest hype right now is that the government's going to push for more COVID lockdowns into the fall and winter months. And they're going to try and reoccur what happened and took place in 2020 to 2021. So they want to lock people down because there's an election coming up in the United States and they want to shut us down and remove us from society. So that's a big fear for the conspiracy theorists. And, you know, I, I had this conversation with my wife the other night. You know, whether or not it happens, it's out of our control. We cannot persuade our rulers by, you know, by any means. The only way we can influence it is by elections. And even those seem to be tainted um, here in the West. And so it's one of those things I can sit and live in fear and I could tremble every day. Of, is this going to be the day? Am I going to lose my freedom? Am I going to lose my rights to preach in a church? Am I going to lose my rights of broadcasting a podcast? Am I going to lose the rights of this, that, and the other? Am I not going to be able to go to the grocery store without having to wear a biohazard suit type thing? You know, those are concerns if you live in fear. But Jesus tells us that we are not to live in fear because we don't, when we're not guaranteed and promised tomorrow. 
So live in joy for this day because tomorrow will have its own problems. Deal with what's in front of you in this very moment. Stop living in fear of what may or may not come to pass. And so I, you know, my, my wife uh, cuts hair, as you all may know, and she always has these interesting clients and they're, you know, people that I know and they're friends and, uh, but they're, interestingly enough, they all, uh, or some of them have some, you know, some attraction to conspiracy theorists. And they, you know, are always talking to my wife about, you know, this and that's going to happen and we're going to have to, you know, like the world currency is going to go digital. Well, the UK kind of snuffed that out a few weeks ago by saying, no, cash must be on hand at all banks going forward. So if the UK makes that move, then obviously it's not going, we're not going to move to a cashless society anytime soon. But these conspiracy theorists, you know, are, were banking on that earlier this year by just the uh, simple release, I think, if you would, from uh, the Federal Reserve indicating that they were moving to more of a um, universal platform for digital money transfers. And so the, the premise is to take away this old system that would take three to five business days for money to move from one system to another. For instance, PayPal to your bank account or your bank account to PayPal. The premise here is to, you know, uh, speed that along, if you would. So, of course, the conspiracy theorists are all up in arms and they're spouting from the rooftop that this is going to be the mark of the beast and the world, one world currency and the one world government's coming. I mean, and they just go, in my opinion, off the deep end. And the same thing could be said about these COVID lockdowns and these mask mandates. And we are, you know, again, a, a society driven on fear. And when we have rulers who lead or leaders who rule in fear, I wouldn't even call them rulers. They're, you know, <laughs> hired, hired hands at the, at some level. I mean, we pay for their salaries, which, you know, really is a frustrating aspect that we don't get a voice where we want, but they think they know what's best for us. And I, you know, I, I get the, the initial lockdowns, like the, the fear that drove that, um, you know, isolate and confine and help to quote unquote, slow the spread. Like the first little bit was, you know, I thought, okay, but when it became, Longer and longer and longer, it just became ridiculous. And it's the same thing today. We've been, you know, a relatively healthy society. We have not seen a huge spike in uh, death over, you know, these these diseases or anything like that. But here we are, uh, as you know, a society driven on fear. And so, when we don't see those trends, and yet the government's going to push for mandates, then that really shows me one thing, and that's the fact that they're hiding, concealing, covering up something, uh, or preventing us from, you know, having our voice heard. Now, me personally, I don't subscribe to the fear-mongering positioning. I think it's a waste of my time, a waste of my energy. Uh, I try to stay up on current events and things like that, and so that's, you know, a thought that kind of reoccurs in my mind is, can they do these things? They could. Will they do these things? It's possible. But why live in fear of tomorrow when I don't know? So, you know, Herod here in the text is driven by his fear, and that results in the death of John the Baptist. And he's a, you know, a, a ruler that is 
ruling with fear and that, you know, is a dangerous ruler. And Jesus gives us the assurance that we should not fear anything. So even our own death, even our own confines, even our own time in prison, Paul makes it very clear that he finds joy and peace in it when he's in prison. In fact, it gives him the ability to evangelize to the guards and to people who may not ever have heard the gospel before. So utilize the situation in life and share the gospel. And that's exactly what we are called and commanded to do as Christians is to continue the growth of our faith. And that is by spreading the gospel and um, sharing it with more people and planting those seeds and baptizing them and then teaching them. That's what Matthew 28 tells us to do. Go into the world, make disciples by baptizing and teaching them. And we'll talk about that uh, more in depth when we get to the end of Matthew. So uh, that's going to wrap up the first part of chapter 14. Uh, Next week, we have the feeding of the 5,000 and then... We will look at Jesus walking on water, and then he heals the sick in uh, Gerasat as the conclusion to chapter 14. Then we move right into chapter 15. So that is that for today's episode. It is Friday, so I pray that you are in church on Sunday and can partake in the sacraments, and I pray that you are filled with the promises of the gospel and that you have your assurances Uh, you know, asserted and established in Christ and your fears are washed away. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. Have a great week. God bless. We'll see you all later.